beautiful humans, welcome to Role Models, Juicy Conversations with Beautiful Humans. I'm Jennifer Norman, founder of the Human Beauty Movement and your host. Today, we are going to talk about emotions and how our mental health affects our physical health and our appearance. My special guest today is Dr. Paige Yang, a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine who specializes in women's health, fertility, facial rejuvenation, and acupuncture. Dr. Yang helps her patients nurture their emotional well-being so they can look and feel their best. Welcome, Dr. Yang. I'm so happy to be discussing this riveting topic with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And feel free to call me Paige Jennifer during the oh, podcast. Of course. No problem, Paige. Thank you for offering. Well, let's get to know you. Please tell us about your background and how you developed an interest in TCM. Yes. So I am a local Hawaii girl and my mother's Chinese from Hawaii. My father is Caucasian or what we call Haole here in Hawaii. And he was born in Venezuela, but his family made their way to Colorado. And that's kind of where he calls home. And I first got interested in traditional Chinese medicine from my grandmother, who is from China. And growing up, she always celebrated all of the holidays and was very true to the traditions and customs. She's a calligrapher, painter, author, ballerina, all of these traditional forms that really inspired her from her childhood in China. And so growing up, she took care of me often and she would just teach me a lot of these things, taught me calligraphy, taught me how to, you know, count, speak very basic Chinese, and it just had a big impact on me. So that was really my big introduction to Chinese culture and then what led to my interest in traditional Chinese medicine. How amazing. Are you also bilingual? Yes. Oh. I'm completely proficient in Mandarin. I can read, write, and speak. And I'm really grateful I have that skill. Yeah, what a gift. <laughs> what a gift. Now, traditional Chinese medicine is so fascinating, and it covers a wide variety of modalities. Can you share some of the ones that you use in your practice? Yes. So acupuncture is the big one that traditional Chinese medicine is really known for. It's how a lot of people get introduced to the medicine. I'm also a board-certified herbalist, and I practice in the clinic, which is another modality that we might touch upon when we talk more about beauty. And I also do moxibustion, which is a burning of a Chinese herb that really helps to stimulate the channels and meridians and add warmth to the body. I do tuina, which is a form of Chinese medicinal massage and qigong, which is a kind of an energy type of healing. And it really means like to exercise your energy. So I will apply that as well to the needles or to my patients when I'm treating them. And then of course, there's always diet, lifestyle and nutrition, no coaching that is included in people's treatments as applicable. So wow, there's so much now, mm -hmm. I, because there's so much, it's almost like you don't know where to begin. But it's like, what is it about traditional Chinese medicine that is so powerful and so special? And that perhaps, you know, when we think about Eastern, or what we'd consider still alternative, even though it's not quite as alternative anymore as it once was. But what is it about the difference between the Eastern and traditional Chinese medicine way of healing versus Western medicine? Traditional Chinese medicine has been documented for over 5,000 years. 
However, it's been around for much longer than that. And that is because over 5,000 years ago, when the human consciousness was a lot more elevated, people could communicate telepathically and they had a much stronger sense of communication through the spirit and the mind. They didn't have the need to really document in a written form. Mm -hmm. And then as we kind of descended into darker times and we've lost our ability to communicate in those ways and our consciousness kind of started to dim, that is when people really realized, okay, we need to start writing this down because we are going to forget this information. We don't have the same access to that type of communication. We're starting to lose grip of it. So documented for 5,000 years, it's really a medicine rooted in Taoism, which is rooted in nature. And I always say that science was formulated to explain nature. And therefore there's nothing more scientific than nature itself. And so this medicine is rooted in nature. It's rooted in the intelligence of nature. And that's really what makes it so powerful because it really brings us back to communion with nature. And, you know, there's this non-duality between human beings and nature. And a lot of times we also lose sight of that. And we think that we're separate and we can control nature and we're the dominant species. And we're here to kind of like rule above everything else. And so traditional Chinese medicine kind of says that's not true. (laughs) And so it helps us to slow down and really tap into that intelligence of nature and see how we're so interconnected. And then that was can then heal us. And then when we look at Western biomedicine, they very much come from that standpoint. Well, it's only believe like around 250 years old, maybe 300 years old. So of course, there's that immaturity that is embedded in the medicine. But then there's also that idea that they can control, manipulate, manufacture, engineer types of nature synthetically in a controlled way to replicate for studies and to promote sales of pharmaceuticals. And so anything that's going to be rooted in that intention, the efficacy is always going to be a little bit compromised. And of course, there is an amazing, amazing, amazing leaps and bounds of modern medicine and how it can save lives and prolong life. And it's truly incredible the research that's there, but on a very fundamental foundation, that's really where the big differences I see are between the two medicines. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is so profound. This is the first time that I've ever heard it explained in terms of the fact that it is more rooted in consciousness and therefore in nature versus the Western medicine, which is much more, as you mentioned, immature. I was going to call it arrogant because who are we to say that, you know, oh, this is the way. I find it so fascinating that the way that, you know, modern science works is the double blind placebo control as the be all end all to determine if something works. And then they put people into completely artificial environments in many cases, which which will, you know, serve a certain purpose, but not necessarily get to the fact that you have to be in a specific environment in order to thrive and allow these things to kind of flow out their course. And so, yeah, is the system rigged? Probably. (laughs) And so that's why it's so funny that only now are we finding, wow, there's something to this plant medicine. There's something to this meditation and this, you know, elevated way of getting into the mind. And it's fascinating that we have lost touch with the fact that we used to be able to commune so much and be in so much more harmony with nature. And it's so much more apparent in indigenous and tribal communities than it is in the modern world. We have lost touch with that. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. 
And it's wonderful that there's, you know, wonderful people such as yourself that are passing down through ancestry, these wonderful gifts and holding on to the specialness that is this medicine. And it's really thriving. It's having a moment and hopefully it will only continue to escalate from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so as well. Yeah. So as you mentioned, a lot of people do enter in because they have an ache or a pain or something that's going on in their body. And they're like, well, and somebody will tell them, have you seen an acupuncturist about that? If all else fails, you know, if you've got something with a muscle or something with a joint, even pets will go for acupuncture as well. And so how in the world does it work? <laughs> it's such mm-hmm. a great <laughs> I know it's, it is a, so many people, so many patients. I mean, half of my patients are interested to really know how it works. And the other half are, you know, they just totally surrender and they want to be just received knowledge of the medicine. So essentially, I mean, the really cool thing is there are 365 main points on 12 channels of meridians. And this was thousands of years before the Gregorian calendar said there's 365 days within 12 months. And the points are really a reflection of the constellations and the cosmos. And a lot of them share the same names as the stars. So Chinese medicine understood that the body was a microcosm of all that is. And we are just like a conduit of the universe and divinity. So essentially, illness in Chinese medicine is seen as blocks of energy. So we talk about chi a lot, which is very hard to translate just and give it its full justice. But in in a sense, it's the energy, the life force, the vitality that runs through all of us. And so when this energy gets stuck, it causes illness, it causes stagnation, and what a lot of people in the Western world might understand is inflammation. And so the needle is essentially a tool that's inserted at these specific points. And these points are like communication portals, and they receive the messages, different messages at different points, and then they go ahead and disseminate it throughout the whole body and tell the body exactly what to do and how to do it. So the needle taps into that communicated portal and says, okay, this is what to do. This is how to do it. And it really helps to unblock the stagnation of energy and chi and blood. And then when that happens, the body can return to harmony and function normally. So that is, you know, I don't know if that helps people understand it anymore, but that is really kind of the work of acupuncture. Wow. It's quizzical. It's phenomenal. It's magical. Mm -hmm. And it's really all that. And so to the point that no pun intended, to the point that it gets to these very specific places in the body, which are in line with everything that is within the universe. I mean, it's just so profound. I love that. And I had no idea that is so cool. Wow. So what kind of things do people mostly come in for? And then do they start to like, once they've kind of drunk the Kool-Aid, do they then start to get <laughs> more interested and intrigued and want to be cur- a little bit more curious about a more natural lifestyle? Yeah. So I'd say overall for my field, most people find Chinese medicine and acupuncture because they are in a lot of pain and either they don't want to be on pain medication and go down that whole path. That's a really, you know, a, a big issue here, or they just didn't respond to make pain medication. And so that's what brings a lot of people in the door for traditional Chinese medicine. For my practice specifically, 
many women are coming in for fertility, hormonal, mental health related issues, and then facial rejuvenation. So that's where they peak interest and find me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'd say I have a pretty high patient retention rate. So once they're in the clinic and I can educate them about how we will be working together and what it looks like to work with me, then for the most part, they really commit and are compliant to the treatment. I also do, you know, Hawaii, the cost of living here is very high. Salaries are very low. And I had a practice in the Bay Area and I actually just kept my Bay Area rates and moved them over to Hawaii. So that's just to say that the patients that come in my door, they're very committed and they're very intentional. They're not necessarily trying to try it out. I think my rates are too expensive to just try it out. A part of them has already committed to the medicine before they find me. But yeah, before they book with me. I understand. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't be able to afford you, but. <laughs> <laughs> so interestingly enough, for the, I would say the guests that are in Hawaii, there's always this notion that Hawaii does have some essence or a spiritual magic or some sort of real mystical, wonderful halo around it that keeps it so sacred. Do you find that the people there who are coming to you are more the ones that are transplanted? So gosh, I'm so glad you brought this up. I have, I always have a lot of opinions. So, (laughs) well, one thing I'll say that's great is I have a grant program that specifically I have two grants for Native Hawaiians that are in healthcare and education. Mm. So they get to apply, there's application process, they have to submit an essay, they have to demonstrate their connection to their lineage and how they give back to the community. And then once they're awarded, and I just awarded at the turn of this month to new recipients, they receive six visits of choice. And they can choose any treatment they want, any six at any duration. So that's a great way that I get to really keep in touch with the Native Hawaiian population and specifically the ones in education and healthcare that I just feel like are great service to our community. And then I do, you know, I had a lot of the Bay is Well, I don't know how similar probably in LA where you just kind of find the provider in your neighborhood Mm. because there's always going to be a, there's so many providers in California that you're just going to find the one that's convenient. So I, you know, I only pulled from the people that lived close to me when I was in the Bay. And then when I moved back home to Oahu, there were quite a bit of patients from the Bay that made their way to Hawaii because of the pandemic, they were able to work distally. And then they started to come in and see me because they always knew of me from the Bay, but they didn't want to travel, you know, from San Jose to work. So they, but then once they were on the same island as me, it brought them in. So I do see a decent amount of transplants from the Bay Area. And then I see a lot of, mostly my community is locals because, you know, born and raised here, I'm sixth generation in Hawaii through my mom and her dad's side. And so I really, you know, and they see the work that I do for the community and we love to support local. So that is still majority of my patients. That is so special because I have actually been watching a lot of news documentaries about the colonization and about the loss of culture. And it's it's hard. It's very hard for, you know, the, the former generations to feel that their ancestry and their lineage is being diluted. And so, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to keep that, that specialness and that uniqueness in the culture for sure. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. That's amazing. So then how did you get into women's fertility, women's health and beauty, frankly, what was it that really kind of drew you over?
over to that area of helping other individuals with uh, what's mm -hmm. ailing them. Right. So when I sat for my board exams, my California board exams, I was actually five months pregnant. And no wonder. Say <laughs> <laughs> no more. So, yeah. So as soon as my son was born, I think I was like licensed in May 2014. And then he was born in September 2014. So really soon at right when I had entered the field or a license within the field and could start my own practice, I was a mother. And that you was entered your field. And so <laughs> right. And it's you know, as you know, it's just very motherhood, especially early motherhood is very taxing and trying and it really influences all aspects of your life. So that's kind of when I decided, all right, I'm going to do my doctorate and then I'm going to specialize in fertility and women's health. And then what had happened was I saw a big wave of patients successfully and they had their children. They came in to see me regularly. They went through their pregnancy. They had their children. They got through postpartum and then they all came back and they were like, like, I don't look and feel like myself. How can you help me? And that's when I really shifted focuses to facial rejuvenation because I felt like, okay, how can I help these women to look and feel like themselves? Like they just didn't recognize who they were anymore or who they were becoming or they like really grieved their old selves pre-motherhood. So that's really when I pivoted to facial rejuvenation. And then what I saw with that was truly like the aging process and what women were not liking about themselves. What came underneath that was this big psycho-emotional component. And that's kind of what led to those features or those aspects of their faces that they didn't love was actually an experience or a collection of experiences that led to, you know, a very pronounced crease or an expression that they didn't necessarily relate to, etc. So that's kind of where the mental health part made its way in as well, because I saw that relationship and how direct it was and how much it influenced the women's appearance. That's so fascinating. So it's almost as if when we go through life and there's these transitions or these extreme, I guess, turning points that really define, it could be the birth of a child. It could be a graduation, a divorce, a marriage, all of these things, but it's almost like you're turning the page and you do, your body becomes somebody else, but have you lost something or have you left something behind that you're still pining for? Tell me what that emotional work is like. You know, how do you get down and, and dig down into the emotions and the mental health with what you do? Mm -hmm. So I'd say most of my really loyal patients are probably in their 50s and 60s. And they're either, you know, divorced in a second marriage, their children are grown and out of the house. And they're really trying to find who they are without all of those identities that they had previously. Mm -hmm. And what that generation that also the expectations that their generation had on who they were supposed to be as women. And so they come into the clinic and they're a little bit lost. And I think over the decades, their spirit and part of their spirits were kind of leaving their body and given to other people and sacrificed and really taken the backseat. And I, you know, I'm a millennial and I felt like my generation really was starting to shift this narrative of like taking care of ourselves and self-care 
and really understanding the importance of that. So the women coming in, it's still such a new thing and they, they feel still conflicted. They don't know if they're being selfish. They don't know if they deserve this. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they have all of these conflicting messages. So essentially I kind of act as a mirror and just deeply listen to them. And then I give, I kind of just report back what I hear and what I hear their fears are or what they're trying to reconcile with their lives. And that deep listening becomes extremely healing for them because for the most part, no one did that for them. They just didn't, you know, their kids wouldn't do it. Their spouse wouldn't do it. Their parents definitely didn't do it. And a lot of the women, they're that friend for everyone else, the ones that come into my clinic. So they just really didn't have anyone to do that for them. So just the deep listening and reflecting back is a huge start of their healing journey to be seen and heard and validated. And then once, you know, each case is going to be different, but once they get that and they really understand their footing, then we can kind of start to pivot and we can, what eventually happens. So I really, I have these 10 pack series. So I have people sign up for 10 treatments. They come in once a week for 10 visits. So over the course of the 10 visits, what really ends up happening is yes, they end up looking amazing, but they all say to me that they completely change their relationship with themselves Mm-hmm. and their aging process and the way in which they look at aging and beauty. And that to them was the biggest rewarding part of the whole 10 pack series. It wasn't that we were able to, to do all the aesthetic things they wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. It was that they were able to come to a place where they felt at complete ease and love and acceptance of themselves and who they were in this phase of their lives. Isn't that what true happiness is all about? It's mm-hmm. true. And a lot of times it happens after something that's very traumatic. I myself don't know that all too well. And you really feel that there's just a loss of clarity. There are these blockages. There are these negative halos and a lot of things that are just getting in your way and causing you to lose sight of you, of yourself. And so you do, you start looking externally saying, I should be looking like this, or I don't, you know, I don't feel like this anymore. And, and the aging process and the, you know, the marching of time does its thing. And, and it, and it causes people to even not recognize themselves even more more. And that unfortunately is the evidence that they see that they are not themselves. And so the the listening, I absolutely love that. It's like you're giving therapy <laughs> sessions at the same time that you're also helping them with all these other things and being able to really, you know, take those moments to focus on themselves and to the point of guilt. Yeah. A lot of people are like, you know, oh, I, in my generation and I'm a, a Gen Xer, it was like the more that you can be of service to other people, then you are a good person person, you know, then you were, you know, worthy of praise. But you know, if you focus too much on yourself, if you, you know, take moments of yourself, then you're not a good mom, or you're not a good daughter or, or whatever. And then all of that shame and all of that guilt does cascade onto you too. So it's wonderful that you're able to have those kinds of breakthroughs with your work in order for people to really find themselves and find that satisfaction, knowing that there's always room to improve. And there's always that journey of excellence that we all seek, but not letting that be a goal that prevents you from being satisfied and loving yourself with how you are right here right now, for sure.
sure. Right. That's lovely. That's lovely. So I know that you mentioned gua sha and I would love to circle back to that because it's something that I actually started using in my practice and it's actually really, I enjoy it. It really feels like just a nice face massage. And I actually use, I make an oil with my humanist beauty brand, which is wonderful liniment for letting it just glide over the skin. But can you tell me about where this started? And I know that a lot of people do use either rose quartz or obsidian or jade and what that has to do if there's any method to the madness of <laughs> using those wonderful crystals in order to help guide energy. Right. Yes. So, you know, earlier I mentioned artifacts dating back to the Stone Age, the Paleolithic Age. And really what was found were these gua sha tools and these stones that were cut and used for gua sha. And gua sha was traditionally used for internal illness. So in different cultures, even like Vietnamese culture, Chinese culture, you would actually, gua means to scrape and then the character in Sha, there's a character meaning San, but there's a radical above it that means illness. So it talks about that petechiae, that kind of strawberry that can come up from scraping. So traditionally, it was used to help with internal illness, such as febrile disease, regulate blood pressure, body aches and pains, warding off colds and flus. And it was applied to the body, primarily the back, the neck, sometimes the shoulders, even the underarms to help release those pathogens. And so that's kind of where it originated from. And then in the Qing dynasty in China, so kind of like the mid 1800s into the early 1900s, there was an empress who ruled and empress Doegger Sushi, and she loved beauty. You know, she was an empress. So she sat on her throne and she loved, was enthralled with beauty. So around that time, they started to repurpose these gua sha tools, use precious stones, you know, for royalty, upper class elite. And so in China and Chinese culture, jade is such a auspicious type of a precious stone in the culture. So she would use jade, she would use other types of coveted stones. And she then a technique kind of shifted to the aesthetic facial gua sha or what's called mian bu gua sha. And what happened is they had to adapt. They didn't want that sha, that particular kind of strawberry rash. They understood they had to slow down and have an intentional practice that was much slower, that had more mild pressure, and that would then yield some aesthetic benefits. So she's been photographed with facial tools, period pieces of like Chinese sitcoms where she is you know, featured in them, they'll position her with a facial roller or a gua sha board. So that's when it became really popular in mainland China in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then it only really made landfall in the US, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, very recently. Yeah. And the problem with that has been it's become very convoluted. And I think a lot of people don't even know that it originated from China and its modality within Chinese medicine, because the popularity kind of fell into the hands of, you know, women that were not connected to the culture of the medicine and the history and didn't know how to hand down this modality, this cultural practice. So, you know, that's kind of where it still is. And myself and some colleagues are trying to change 
change the narrative, help educate people, and just help them understand the origins and roots, significance and intentions, where it's not just like a beauty hack or a beauty trend. It's really rooted in a cultural practice. And it was handed down with affection within households amongst women as a way to take care of yourself and love yourself. So it's a much deeper practice. And then of course, you know, the gemstone industry has exploded. And they're, you know, with any type of explosion of a commodity, there's always going to be conflict involved. So I really personally, I have my own facial tool line and brand and I really stick to, you know, rose quartz, which is very popular, but it's also quartz essentially is found everywhere around the world. It's very abundant. It's not this like deep, dark, coveted gemstone that does have a little bit of a, or maybe a lot of bit of a conflict. A trail following it so but yeah so that's kind of you know and then in Chinese culture jade is huge and I love jade <laughs> and um, you're wearing jade <laughs> I have jade I have a lot of jade um, wow yeah yeah so that's another popular material within Chinese medicine that we'll utilize for facial gua sha specifically yeah can you tell me a little bit more about the significance of jade in the Chinese culture because people wear the jewels and all of these wonderful things out of jade. I have quite a, an arsenal of jade myself. And a lot of times I'll read, you know, what from a conscious perspective or an intuitive perspective certain stones mean. And I never really know if it's true or not. <laughs> and it's always like, well, this has a nice, interesting, superstitious backstory. But I'm sure that there's so much more to it than that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I can speak from just someone within the culture. I'm not a gemologist, of course. But so jade is the raw form of jadeite is a living stone, which means that it is going to change in color. Once you wear jade and the jade kind of chooses you, it interacts with your body. So I have a bangle that I'm wearing now and some veins have come out of it. And because it's raw, it's still living and it's kind of interacts with my own body. And then another, the jade bracelet that I have, when I got COVID, all these black specks started to come out of the jade. And I know that it was detoxing and helping to purify me. And the other thing with raw jadeite is it kind of captures all the negative energy and then it just disperses it out. Mm. So it's as a living stone, it just has a lot of, you know, all energetic bodies have a lot of power. So the jade is no exception. And it's just something that's always been so celebrated within Chinese culture. It's so, it's very strong yeah. too. It's a very strong stone. And so that also the durability is attractive as well. To, then you can hand it down through the generations and it's good luck. Like, you know, Chinese, we love anything about like luck and fortune and what's going to bring you good health and a lot of money. And that's kind of like the things that Chinese culture really focuses on. So Jade is seen as one of those stones that will do those things for you. Oh, that's beautiful. I would love, since you've mentioned that gua sha had originally been used all over the body, are there any tips or things that you still do in your practice that other people might be able to incorporate on their own to do gua sha on the body? Because I've only known it for the face. Right. So I guess, yeah, I mean, a couple of things about that. So because it is a medical modality, there are going to be cautions and contraindications involved within that practice. So the hard thing is, unless you're a practitioner, or you've grown up in a family that knew how to utilize it, it is a little hard to instruct people on the usage of it for internal illness. 
because of those risks. So God forbid there's like a woman who's pregnant and or has like a blood pressure issue or a clotting issue or issue with their cycle. And we try to instruct them from afar and something goes wrong. You know, that would be a a fault of Chinese medicine. So I kind of shy away from that as much as, of course, we want to be able to give people this information and be helpful the best thing is to really seek out a provider who will be able to apply those techniques to you or even be able to give you more hands-on instruction. Yeah, that is such great yeah. advice. And, and absolutely, or, you know, I don't know too many people who would want to do acupuncture on themselves. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so this should be treated in the same precious way. How about some of the more commonly used herbs? I, I'll say common in that I hope that there's no risk in talking about them. Like if somebody has a headache, or if somebody's having menstrual cramps or if somebody's having other sorts of, you know, pain in their body anywhere, are there specific go-to herbs that are just more commonly used uh, within traditional Chinese medicine? These are really good questions. So the interesting thing is a lot of people will say, oh, it's so hard to get a straight answer from my acupuncturist or, you know, because this medicine, I think we often, even though earlier I spoke about the beauty and stillness and calm of nature, there are also, of course, is a chaotic side of nature that we often forget about. And so which is just to say that this medicine is very nuanced, and it is very complicated. And what makes it so wonderful is it's very specific to each individual. Like we don't even though this is how the West does things, because it makes a good profit where they can just throw on like, you know, headache medication or like anti-diarrhea medication or anti-blood or, you know, lower blood pressure medication because every person's different. They have their own health history. They're identified differently with gender, age, weight, where they are in their cycle. The best way to practice this medicine so that it doesn't get diluted for future generations is to really go patient specific. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the kind of the better answer for practitioners who are really integrity with the medicine is that unfortunately there isn't going to be this like one panacea type of herb for a certain condition because the way in which that condition arose is going to be completely different for each individual. So that's what makes the medicine a little frustrating and it keeps it more mysterious and it's just a little harder to access because of that hurdle, but really to keep it intact and to honor it, that's kind of how it has to be practiced. So that's the hard part, you know, for people listening and that want to just really benefit. And, you know, people still, brands still exist that utilize traditional Chinese herbs to then pull a profit based on how they market it on very generalized conditions. But that really isn't how the medicine is intended to be practiced. I think that that just speaks volumes about your own integrity in that, you know, in being asked a direct question such as I had done on a podcast, it's true. It's like that makes it so beautifully customized and so individual and so specific to what your needs are versus anybody else's needs. And the and the fact that somebody else might have gotten healing from XYZ does not in the very least mean that you will get healing from XYZ because your your own energy, your your own body. And one size does not fit all. So I appreciate that guidance so immensely. And it's probably one of the first times that I've actually heard that. So thank you. <laughs> it, it is highly appreciative and it keeps it to your point, it keeps it very special and mysterious. Mm-hmm. 
and but for good reason is because that those that are um, practicing with integrity and you're right within the western culture everybody just wants that quick fix everybody wants to be able to go and buy something packaged off the shelf and there's probably wonderful companies that do their best to try to you know do it for the masses because they perhaps think that there could be more good than harm but for the most part yeah it is creating a bit of a watering down or shall I say a lot of watering down on what has been really something that has been very special and unique and I almost think of it as a place where with shaman in certain cultures and how they do practice medicine and how they practice ceremony this should be treated in a very similar fashion Mm -hmm. right Amazing. Well, are there any other words that you would like to to offer to people who might be interested in coming to see a specialist such as yourself, a doctor of Chinese medicine? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that, you know, there can be hurdles to finding a good provider based on where you live and what you are able to access economically. But I will say that the great thing about this medicine is it really helps you understand the value of your health and well-being. And in our culture in the U.S., we're such a, you know, we love consuming things. And I never try to judge anyone where certain items bring them a lot of happiness. But I also want to encourage those same people to then equally or if not more value their own health and well-being. And so while initially, you know, a lot of places or practices do not work with insurance because either insurance will not cover it or it's just too hard, difficult of a model for an acupuncturist to participate in. And so a lot of times people see that as a big hurdle and they're like, oh, can I really afford to do this? And when you value something, you find a way. And there are, you know, myself included, I'll spend a lot of money on hair or nails or, you know, people in Hawaii love to spend money on handbags and all of those things. And I'm happy for them and I'm happy it brings them joy, but I also want them to see what I can provide and what other acupuncturists can provide and put a lot of value in that and see how regenerative it is for them and then be able to prioritize their finances and take a leap of faith and seek someone out. So that's kind of like the thing that I see a lot of the time because we're so used to either co-pays or insurance or we don't think we're supposed to be paying a lot for a medicine that's not mainstream. But if we can shift our perspective and our priorities, then you there's a huge benefit to be had. Um, and finding a provider within traditional Chinese medicine. Such wise words. Dr. Paige Young, I am going to put your links in the show notes. I am so delighted. Thank you so much for these words of wisdom that you shared with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. Jennifer.